0: Blood Bond by Nick Bastin Copyright 2019 Nick Bastin Chapter 10 Duncan Tarpy As he stepped under the lintel and into the dark Gillespie found himself in a narrow hallway almost entirely filled with a staircase Following the rat's disappearing legs, Gillespie mounted the stairs two at a time, coming out of the gloom onto a surprisingly bright and open landing. Two bulky clansmen barred their way. The rat spoke to them rapidly and the two hulks shifted aside to let them pass. The walls were hung with a few very faded blue tapestries and what appeared to be an Andy Warhol portrait of the chief in his younger days. Dark glasses to the fore, a flourish of eagle feathers in his bonnet, and the drape of a great kilt over his naked torso in what could have been in Studio 54, the famous New York nightclub. Following his glance, the rat responded, Aye, he was a wild one back in the day. And he gave him that after Duncan taught him how to throw a knife. Different times then. They arrived at a pair of stout oak doors, each of which had had a finely cast brass tower set in the middle. As the rat reached to open them, they swung inwards to reveal the room beyond. Gillespie knew that this must be the famous Red Banner Hall, the centre of clan life for five hundred years. It was not as big as he had imagined, and it had windows on two sides that brought in shafts of light, but due to the high ceilings, the corners of the room shrank away into shadow. His gaze was drawn to the huge fireplace surmounted by a heavy carving of the now familiar tower. Underneath it read, I hope in God. In front of the fire, on which he could have roasted an ox, was a chair in which sat an elderly and plainly very unwell man. Duncan Tarpey McNaughton, thirty-fifth chief of the clan McNaughton and keeper of the Black Tower, was swaddled in many layers of clothing, and even though the fire was roaring behind him he shivered and shook. His long face was gaunt like yellowed ivory, his cheekbones pushed higher by the deep recesses below. His eyes were now roomy, their blue power diffused by cataracts and time. His aquiline nose, once so admired by Warhol and Maplethorpe, was gnarled and mapped by the contours of burst capillaries. Gillespie had heard many tales of Duncan, some inspiring, some cautionary, but all of them had been extravagant tableaus, soaked in the technicolour of projected dreams and half truths, the clannish pride of his father inflating and burnishing the legend. It seemed impossible that this shrunken body could be the same person. Ewan stepped out of the shadows and leant down to his ear. My chief, this is your cousin Gillespie. Come home from across the water. Ian the rat has brought him as you requested. Duncan turned his bleary eyes in Gillespie's direction. Gillespie felt sure that he couldn't see, but he was wrong. Duncan started to laugh. A low chuckle at the beginning, building to a raspy wheeze, finished by a hacking cough. With a grimace, he spat a yellow sputum in the fire and watched it sizzle before turning his face back to Gillespie. Ach, well, so you're just like your father and his father. I would recognise that hair and those eyebrows anywhere. Fine men they were too. We could have all done with more men like them staying close to home. But ach, that was all so long ago. He paused. As if having lost his train of thought before continuing. Gillespie, do you know why they've brought you here? Ewan and Ian exchanged glances while Gillespie contemplated the question. I understand that you are dying and that there will need to be a choosing of the next chief. For some reason, you thought it important to have me kidnapped and brought here. Gillespie could feel his cheeks flushing as his anger rose. But I know nothing about you or the clan or even the Republic. My grandfather left all this behind for a reason, to seek a new and better life, a life without all the pointless violence and the stupid blood feuds you gales seem to love. I'm a farmer, not a warrior. I've no martial skills to offer. Why on earth would anyone even want me as chief? Duncan laughed again, more vigorously, until his body shook, racked by spasms. Another sputum went on the fire, this time thicker and redder. Recovering his composure, Duncan gestured at Gillespie to pull up a chair next to him and once he'd sat down, said I know, I know, and I'm sorry It was selfish of me to want you to be here and I'm sad that a good man had to die to achieve it But there is a logic and a reason why it matters We're surrounded and hounded by our neighbours on all sides McCallum Moore is just one of the threats we face That bastard Lamont is also greedy for what little is left us no, our neighbours are a long list, and they all want to take us over. Our land, this house, but most of all, they want our gaming operation. Ever since the brilliant Dermid McNutt put us on the map for the first time in a hundred years, those buzzards have been circling ever lower. I can feel them here, he clawed at his hollowed-out face, just waiting for me to croak my last. But I'll be damned before we give it up so easy. The clan is small now, and we are sick of the sight of each other. I wanted to bring in some fresh blood to the choosing. They may not want you. They probably won't want you, but at least they will have had a choice. Then they can lie in a bed of their own making. Once they've chosen, you can go home. I've asked the clan treasurer to compensate you for your inconvenience. If my memory of your house is anything like the reality, you may be grateful for a little financial assistance, and I've told them to have an open hand. "'So have patience, Gillespie. "'I won't detain you much longer.' "'Then, exhausted by this speech, he slumped in his chair, "'chin on his chest, the mucus-filled wheezing, the only noise. "'Ewan nodded at them both, gesturing that they should leave. "'Gillespie followed Ian the rat to the door, "'wondering if he would ever meet his cousin again. "'As he was almost through the doorway, Duncan called out. "'A clawed hand beckoned Gillespie to come closer, "'and as he approached Duncan's chair... It gripped his hand tightly, pulling him down. "'Is that what your father told you, about why your grandfather left?' The Weesby whisper trailed away, but Duncan's milky eyes were resolute. Gillespie nodded. The hacking cough that followed was awful. Blood foamed at either corner of Duncan's lips. His lungs were losing their battle. Gillespie wanted to pull away, to leave this dying man to pass in peace.' But the hand would not release him. It pulled him closer still, his whisper faint. Don't believe everything your father told you. Exhausted by this effort, Duncan closed his eyes and slumped deeper on his chair. The clawed hand relinquished its grip on Gillespie's, giving a final squeeze as it was withdrawn. Chapter 11. The Cannon Gillespie felt relief when he walked outside into the cooler air. The hall had not only been stifling, but was permeated with the expectation of death's imminent arrival. The stillness and shadows, combined with the oppressive heat, had been quite overwhelming. While Gillespie was no doctor, Duncan was clearly on the last lap, and he knew it. The parchment-like skin pulled taut across those once fine cheekbones, the liver spots insidiously spreading across his hands, and that cough, well, they all told their own story. He turned Duncan's last words to him over and over in his mind. What did he mean? What shouldn't he believe? It had all seemed so straightforward before, his grandfather sensibly leaving his benighted homeland for a better life. But now doubt crowded his mind. There was something strange about his grandfather. He would never talk of the clan or his background, and if anyone asked, he would change the subject. Gillespie had never seen him wearing a kilt or any tartan either. It was as if he'd left all that behind when he crossed the water. But meeting Duncan hadn't given him any answers after all, only questions. Leaving the rat to have a smoke in the outer ward, Gillespie walked out through the scrub oak and Scott's pine woods that came down to the shore of the loch. The tall pine trees soared high above him, their trunks scabby with grey scaly bark, and naked of branches until high in the air, as if shrinking from the touch of the humans far below. Beneath them, the oak trees were still leafless, waiting for winter's passing before pulling on their new spring coat, their stubby, upstretched boughs resilient. In this sunshine, Gillespie could sense their expectation too. Soon, but not yet. There was a light but regular flow of people along a well-worn path that led up towards the woods, and as he walked under the trees, he saw that the path turned into a more substantial track beyond. This followed the loch shawl and was rutted and potholed and covered in loose chippings between pools of muddy water. Ahead he could see a small group gathered by the side of the track, and as he got closer he realised that they were in fact an angry bundle of gesticulating arms and voices. Pressing his way through the crowd, he saw two figures in the centre of the makeshift circle, fingers jabbing and voices raised. One carried the familiar red, green and blue tartan while the other had a dark green and blue, almost black, Tartan. You Campbell cunt! I knew it was you that thieved my cat. It took me three days and fifty coins to fix it back from the other side of Rannoch. I should open you up here and be done with it. To hell with your Macallan Moore. He should keep you rabble in your place. The Wignoghsen shook with rage, eyes wide and wild, the dark red beard bristling. At that moment Gillespie twigged it was Jamie. The rage had so transformed him that he was barely recognisable. His fellow clansmen had pinioned his arms, but were struggling to hold him back from his adversary, who stood calmly waiting for Jamie's rant to conclude. He was a blonde man of average build. His hair was scraped back tightly across his head and tied in a ponytail. His blue eyes sparkled cheerfully, as if enjoying the moment. Gillespie looked around the group and saw the usual arsenal of weaponry hanging off every shoulder and hip. Why was the blonde so relaxed? He was outnumbered, twenty to one. Why hadn't someone put a bullet in this arsehole? Campbell inspected his cuff, as if seeing some dust on the pristine black drill cotton he brushed at it with the back of his hand, sardonically turning to fix Jamie with his unperturbed gaze. Jamie's rage was duly raised another notch. Enough, came a commanding voice. Kirsty. Jamie Ruhr, are you accusing Niall Campbell of stealing your cat? Aye, I am, and the bastard should pay me for the time and money it cost me to get it back, Jamie replied, shaking off the restraining arms. And if the cowardly Campbell cunt doesn't want to pay, well, let's settle it according to the canon. The accompanying sneer would have curdled milk, but the Campbell remained calm, raising his hand to speak. There is no such need for such language. It is perfectly clear that I did not steal your clapped-out cat. Why would I? I can't imagine it could even get me from here to Inverary. How it made its way past Rannock, I have no idea. The Grigorach must have carried it there. But if you're invoking the cannon, then you leave me little choice. Kirsty nervously turned to face Jamie. Are you sure you want to invoke cannon? It's not too late to retract. Jamie nodded slowly, eyes narrowed and fixed on the blonde. Aye, I'm sure. It's about time this piece of shit paid his bill. Kirsty nodded, and the bystander stepped backwards to clear a wide circle for the two protagonists. OK. As the senior representative of Clan McNuchton present, I declare that canon has been invoked by James McNaughton of Kilblan against Niall Campbell of Ardbrecknish. According to canon, this matter must be settled with blood. The first to draw will prevail. With that, she withdrew, and the two men carefully prepared themselves. Both had been claring claymores in back-mounted scabbards, and having removed all other unnecessary accoutrements, they retrieved their respective blades and stood facing each other in the centre of the circle. While Jamie was thick-set and short, Niall Campbell was lithe. Both had similar swords, although Niall's looked the finer blade. It had a fine red leather lining to its elaborate basket, whereas Jamie's had a more agricultural look. But the glitter and flash were identical as they slashed at the air to warm through their muscles. The men completed their warm-up and faced each other. Kirsty stepped forward a final time and said, cannon has been invoked only by blood can it be settled you must fight until the blood flows may the first drop not be your last. May the first drop not be your last echoed the crowd who now started to cheer on Jamie calling his name and clapping in a slow menacing rhythm Jamie's face was set hard. While Nile was superficially calmer, even he had now shed his smirk. Both men circled each other, Jamie, Jamie aggressively adopting a hanging guard while circling to his right, his left hand on his hip, while Nile calmly adopted a half circle guard with a sword, blade and basket facing to the inside of his posture, his arm well bent and below the level of his wrist. Gillespie thought this looked like a weak position from which to defend against a concerted attack from hanging guard. To anchor him to his heritage, his father had forced him to spend many hours of his childhood going to fencing classes, to learn the eight guards and the seven cuts, the traverse step and how to compass a blade. He'd never enjoyed it much, and was relieved when, in his mid-teens, he was at last able to leave the bruises and batterings of the sword yard behind. Jamie lunged with a lightning-quick cut to Niall's head. Niall ducked and slipped slipped his lead leg backwards, withdrawing beyond the reach of Jamie's blade. Jamie retreated to the hanging guard, the point of his sword leading down across his body. It was now Niall's turn to probe. Circling to his right, he cut to Jamie's left cheek, was parried with a cross guard that pushed his sword way above his head. The blades were held in tension for a moment. Then Jamie released, recovering to an inside guard momentarily before rapidly lunging and laying a cut to Niall's right side. Niall moved smoothly and elegantly, parrying and pushing Jamie's sword to his right before stepping in and punching Jamie hard in the face with his free hand. Smarting, Jamie stumbled backwards, eyes watering, blinking away the unwanted tears. Nile moved so easily. He flowed. Stepping into lunge and back in slip, his sword seemed to barely move. A twist here, a turn there, the basket hilt moving from inside to outside posture, the tip seeming to remain the fixed point around which he moved. As if he could sense that he had to win quickly, if he was to win at all, Jamie feinted a cut at Niall's shoulder, while compassing his blade around his opponents to strike at his leading right leg. Niall parried easily, and pulling on Jamie's overstretched arm with his left hand sent him tumbling to the floor. With a flash of steel it was over, a deep cut drawn across Jamie's prone posterior, which immediately started to seep blood in a determined manner. The crowd scattered, breaking the circle. Several, including Kirsty, rushed to Jamie's aid, staunching the blood and starting to apply field dressings. Jamie groaned but did not rise, accepting the indignity that went with their succour. Niall bowed obsequiously in Jamie's direction and slowly gathered his gear, wiping his sword point on his sleeve. Without further ado and unhindered by the attendant crowd, he set off down the road towards Inverary with a spring in his step and a tune on his lips. Chapter 12 Cleo. Gillespie was shocked at how quickly the events had unfolded and the unexpected consequences that had been left behind. Having watched the skilful application of a spray-on field dressing that stopped the bleeding and bound the cut together, he helped to lift Jamie to his feet. Then, supported on both sides by his fellow clansmen, Jamie slowly and painfully walked back away towards the tower. Gillespie stared after him as he disappeared down the track. ''If you don't shut that mouth, you might catch a fly,'' said Kirsty from behind him. ''What the hell just happened? I mean, what the fuck? Is this normal? Do you always try and butcher each other like this? And why do you not just stand around? You all had guns? Any one of you could have put a bullet between his eyes at a hundred yards.'' Kirsty considered him, her face impassive, letting him finish before responding. ''There is a lot you'll find strange and different here, even though you've grown up in the tradition.'' This is not some textbook. You need to be patient and try and understand why things are the way they are. I'll try and answer your questions, but please calm down. As you might have guessed, our Jamie has a long dispute with Niall Campbell running back over many years. The latest expression of this was Jamie's belief that Niall had stolen his cat and sold it to a bunch of McGregors over Rannock Way. To be honest, I don't know if I believe that. Partly because, as Niall says, I don't think it could have driven that far. It's forever breaking down. In any case, it doesn't really matter, as once Jamie had invoked Cannon, there was nothing any of us could do to stop what happened next. From that moment, it can only be settled by blood. Cleo, honour, demands it. Neither Jamie or Niall could walk away, and neither would the clan let them. After all, honour does not belong to them alone. But he was outnumbered 20 to 1. You could easily have stopped it. Look, Gillespie, you have to understand... We are a small clan. Yes, we outnumbered Niall here today, but he is a Campbell and an important dunya Wassel for McAllen Moore. The dunya Wassel make up the professional fighting corps of the clan and McAllen Moore can put 5,000 men in the field. How many have we got? 100, maybe 150 if we scrape the barrel. We're small fry and know our place. Why do you think we've survived this long? As to guns, it is forbidden under cannon to shoot a fellow gale in the Republic. It is one of the core tenets of our constitution. Do you think there would be any gales left if we ran around shooting each other? No. Any gale that breaks a cannon like that brings a blood feud down on his head and that of his family. Even his clan is obliged to offer him up. This is why we still carry claymores and the like. Under cannon, blades don't count. This was the balance that the Founding Fathers created to satisfy the need for honour while preserving the ability for Gales to protect themselves and ensuring that the Republic didn't wipe itself out. Cannon stopped small trifles becoming big problems. Gillespie paused, thinking. So it's okay to kill each other with swords, but not okay to shoot each other? Kind of, replied Kirsty. Cannon dictates that you fight to first blood. That could be anything from a scratch to a fatal blow. Very occasionally someone will be killed outright, but the winning participant then risks a blood feud with the family of the one they've killed. Generally, if it's perceived as an unfortunate accident, it will go no further. But if it's considered deliberate, then all hell can break loose. Blood feuds apply to you and all your immediate family, any one of whom can be killed to repay the debt. That is why people are so keen to avoid them and also why we're still here, over 250 years after King Charlie freed us. His head swam. All those crazy stories his father had told him about the Republic and its ways. He had never really believed half of it. It was so preposterous. Nonetheless, it was here, taking place in front of his eyes. He idly started to shuffle stone shippings over the bloodstains that Jamie had left on the ground. He had almost forgotten Kirsty was there when her voice suddenly cut into his reverie. Hello, is there anybody in there? She waved a hand in front of his eyes. He snapped back into focus. Sorry, I was miles away. Hmm, I could see that. Well, I for one am starving. Let's go and find some lunch, come on. I need to show you the village and where you'll be staying. Pulling him by the hand, she led him like a lost child down the track. Chapter 13, The Dew Lock. As Gillespie and Kirsty walked along talking, he suddenly realised that she was much shorter than him, even though he'd always felt her to be much larger. The force of her personality more than made up for any lack of stature. She was stout, but not fat, solid, with wide hips and strong thighs that rucked and creased her trousers as she walked. Her upper half was slighter, almost as if the wrong top had been joined to the wrong bottom in some flip-book game. Her roundish face was topped with spiky black hair that she picked at and preened as they walked. She was busy explaining the topography to him as they walked, pointing out where further along the loch, McNaughton Territory abruptly ended and Clan Campbell land started. Most McNaughton Territory that remained was north and west of the loch, lying between it and Loch Orr, some ten miles away. As they rounded Strone Point, they got a good view down the loch to the south and across to Inverary, the white-walled township of the Campbells. Following her finger, Gillespie could see the black turreted hulk of the castle lying just outside the town and dominating its approach. Swinging around the point, they continued to follow the shore, passing a few modest houses at Stronshearer, where Kirsty pointed out Breed's home, before leaving the loch behind and heading up inland, up Glen Shearer. They walked beside the river Shearer as it spilled its load into Glen, Loch Fine. It was hardly the mighty torrent of his imagination but it was still too wide to cross easily, except by the rather battered-looking bridge. Ignoring that, they proceeded to the Dooloch, the hereditary heartland of the clan. The Dooloch was not large, not much more than a millpond, really. Kirsty pointed out that the islet on which the McNuchtans had built their first stronghold, until plague had carried them off and it had to be abandoned. Nothing remained of it now, but the islet endured, and was where the chiefs were buried, albeit it now suffered the indignity of being joined to the shore by a causeway. They followed the river backwards up Glenshira towards its source, through bulrushes and clumps of bog-myrtle that released waves of astringent scent as he and Kirsty pushed through their straggly branches. The sun burst through the clouds at that moment, and combined with the heady smell, Gillespie felt almost relaxed. At each house along the way, Kirsty methodically named the tenants and their children, their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, until Gillespie's head swam with names and the associated epithets that seemed inalienable, one from the other. The tall, the short, the fair, the dark, the wily, the slow, the fisherman, the steam, the IT, the catman, and so it went on. The houses had a similarly descriptive nomenclature, based on what you see is what you get view mount, riverside, big field and for Gillespie it revealed a society at once and for Gillespie it revealed a society at one with its environment and comfortable with reality rather than pretending to something other. The glen was long but fairly straight, and having crested a rise, they could look far away to the north. The slopes on either side were thickly wooded with a mix of pine and scrub oak the pine tending to the higher slopes, while the oak preferred to be lower and more protected. Benbuya rose high and imperious above them, its three ridges dusted with snow, but the sun was at their backs and warmed them as they walked. Immediately in front of them was a fine oak tree, its limbs flung wide, enjoying the relative shelter of the glen. Its leafless branches, with spread fingers, poked and rustled in the light wind. The glen continued into the distance, the hiatus between the f- hills filled with the ebb and flow of the fields and f- woods and the river meandering its way from side to side. A fine view, Gillespie said to himself, as much as to, C- to Kirsty. Aye, it is that, Kirsty replied, which is why we've held it through thick and thin. It's pretty much all we have left now, squeezed as we are by Campbell's all around, M- MacArthur's to the north, McNab's to the east, and the Grigorach anywhere they choose. Duncan Tarpy's passing is going to throw all of that in the air again. Still, we've been here before, and we'll just have to wait and see how it all unfolds. Ahead of them was a fine stone house, its rough blocks almost certainly liberated from the vanished fortress on the Duloch. It sat up above the river and commanded the glen, its five bays tied together under a narrow pediment. The garden in front was littered with bits of dead machinery, an incongruous contrast to the rather fine structure behind. Old tractors, hoes, muck spreaders, balers and troughs were casually strewn, seemingly with little thought to place or visual amenity. A mud spattered vehicle stood, with its bonnet raised and an array of tools and parts laid on the grass beside it. It was unlike any vehicle that Gillespie had seen before. It was shorter than a normal car, and had six tightly bunched wheels, three on either side, and its body was moulded from what looked to be a toughened composite plastic. At the front there was a covered cab which could take two passengers or three at a push, and this was bound in a stout steel roll cage to protect the passengers in case of an unexpected tumble. Behind it was open to the sky, with some hard-molded seats on either side and a load bay in the middle. As they approached they could hear humming, interspersed with the occasional expletive coming from under the dull green bonnet. Hello Nin, no rest of the wicked I see, and Lord knows you are wicked, Kirsty said mischievously. A sharp thump was followed by a torrent of swear words as Nin withdrew his grease-smeared face from the engine bay, collecting a whack from the bonnet's leading edge as he did so. Bastard! You fucking bastard shit! Useless bastard! He swore, lashing out with his foot at the cat, which sat impassive, soaking up the abuse. Rubbing the back of his head and thereby transferring more grease to it, Nin turned and smiled, his teeth blinding in comparison with the surrounding grime. Well, look who it is, if it isn't Captain Kirsty and our long lost cousin, having a tour by the look of it. Kirsty smiled, kicking at one of the cat's many studded wheels. And I see this is still keeping you busy. Should have known better than to bite off you and Cameron of all people. Still, there's no helping some folk. Aye, well, maybe you're right, but I'm nearly done, and then this beauty will purr. Here, Gillespie, come and have a look at the cream of Republic Engineering. Nin stood back grease-covered arms spread wide, ushering Gillespie in to have a closer look at the rugged vehicle. Look in there, he pointed under the bonnet, his smile gleaming with pleasure. That is a 450-horsepower Gale Tech V4 engine. It produces over £550 per foot of torque at only 2,000 revs. This will take you anywhere you want to go. It's a beast. Comfort may may not be high on its list of attributes, but it's tough as fuck. All I need to do is to get the bastard to work. In which he lashed out another kick at the plastic moulded bodywork. Gillespie stood admiring the surprisingly surprisingly neat engine bay. Kirsty mused, hmm, I'll believe it when I see it. When it is, you can whisk me away to the hydro for a romantic weekend. In your dreams and my nightmares, he laughed. Come on in and have a brew. Wiping his hands with a shiny black rag that only served to spread the dirt rather than remove it, he led them across the mechanical graveyard and through the flue front door of the house. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production.